And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's a great pleasure to welcome back to the program uh, for his monthly visit, Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, director of the Clausen Center, author of After the Cold War and uh, numerous articles and essays and uh, responsible for a column that appears in newspapers across the country. And uh, we've counted a, a great privilege that uh, he makes time in his busy schedule uh, to be part of the morning show on a very regular basis. It's hard to imagine the program uh, without him. And there are a lot of interesting things for us to be talking about today. So uh, Professor Artsir, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. You're always so kind, like many people at uh, our institution, Carthage College, and at Gateway, I'm sure as well, <laughs> to be diplomatic. And uh, it's a real tonic for me to um, to appear on your program. It's it's uh, the kind of thing that Tom Clawson very much had in mind some years ago um, in terms of making the college more visible in the world. But uh, quite apart from that, it's a pleasure and serious media. It's, more important all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Glad, to have you. Glad to have you with us. Uh, I thought it might be appropriate actually for us to talk first about the death late yesterday of Walter Mondale. And of course, uh, most of our listeners who are of a certain age certainly know the name Walter Mondale very well. Uh, younger folks, in, including college age folks, potentially might not know the name at all, uh, which is sort of shocking to even contemplate. But Walter Mondale was the uh, 42nd vice president of the United States serving under uh, President Jimmy Carter. He was a U.S. senator from Minnesota, and he uh, was the Democratic nominee for president in 1984, but lost to uh, the incumbent Ronald Reagan in in quite the landslide. But uh, Apart from those particular events, Walter Mondale seems like someone who uh, engendered uh, a, a great deal of, of goodwill, including some from across the uh, political aisle. Uh, I'd be really curious, Professor Sear, to hear from you uh, any thoughts that you have about Walter Mondale, and in particular, uh, if there's any significance to the kind of vice president that he was uh, during the term of President Carter. Uh, yes, he was uh, uh, what we used to term much more commonly than today a dedicated public servant. He was a, uh, as, as you mentioned, um, from Minnesota, uh, like Wisconsin, a good government state, a state with a very strong progressive tradition. The tone of Minnesota, however, I think is, is rather different than Wisconsin uh, politically over the long term. Uh, Mondale, like Hubert Humphrey, his mentor and another vice president of the United States. Uh, poor Vice President Mondale got buried in 1984 electorally by the enormously popular and very, very effective uh, politician and President Ronald Reagan. Uh, Hubert Humphrey almost became president in 1968 when he was the Democratic nominee, when everything was against the Democratic Party. Uh, Humphrey was a notably honest as well as effective politician and a good-hearted person in the truest sense. Uh, someone I've admired uh, for most of my life. 
and Mondale was very much in that tradition. We uh, read in one of your most, I think it is, I think maybe the most recent column uh, about the passing of, of Prince Philip, who of course for more than 70 years was married to the current queen, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, Prince Philip passing away at the age of 99. Uh, your column talks some about uh, Prince Philip specifically, but actually talks even more about the overall significance of of the British monarchy. Uh, maybe let's start there, and then we'll also try to get from you some specific thoughts about Prince Philip himself. But first, uh, Tell us what you think Americans tend not to understand about the significance of the British monarchy, even in the 21st century. Well, in kind of the Brit our British friends do not have a written constitution, unlike us. They rely very heavily on tradition and precedent. They have the common law system as we do, but their um, institutions of government and practices tend not to be as explicit as uh, as in the case of the US and consequently we tend to underplay the monarchy and its importance. The British had their own revolution way back in the 1600s. They overthrew the monarchy um, and when tension for them finally became intolerable between a monarch who was more and more autocratic in dealing with parliament, even though parliament then and now provides the income for the government. Uh, the monarchy was overthrown. Uh, Charles um, I was, be, was tried, sort of, and beheaded. And that set off a long period of revolution and civil war. For a while, they were a republic under the great and very ruthless and brutal military leader, Oliver Cromwell. Um, then they, they went back to a monarchy, but that whole century was very, very unstable for them. It was a very different political culture from what we associate with Britain today. And to get to the point, the reaction against that was they, they really embraced their traditions and uh, seemed collectively to conclude never again. The monarchy is much, much beloved, very influential. The queen or king appoints, formally appoints the government in Great Britain and um, plays a very important advisory role depending on the personality involved. Queen Elizabeth, has, I think, been extremely influential, a remarkably successful monarch over a remarkably long period of time, remarkably successful marriage partner as well. She and Philip were married for, I think, 73 years. Uh, yeah, so given the American um, propensity for explicit government, we tend to underplay and overlook the governmental functions. But the main role of the monarchy is inspirational and emotional. Walter Badgett, who was the longtime editor of The Economist way back in the uh, 1800s, wrote a very important book published in 1867 called The English Constitution. Still timely and worth reading uh, if you're interested in the subject. Uh, he made a, a practical as well as analytic distinction between the dignified and efficient functions of government. Efficient is um, uh, the actual carrying out of the government's business day to day. Dignified is all the emotional and uh, symbolic and uh, non-practical, if you will, functions, the public functions of public authorities. 
and that's vested in the monarchy. A cliche about the United States is we don't have the two uh, separated. We tend, especially in modern times, but in some ways from the beginning, look at the great reverence and uh, respect and, and love with which George Washington was held, our first president. But depending on who's in the White House, uh, the emotional as well as efficient functions are concentrated in the executive branch of the government. It means the dynamic of political debate is very different in this country. Yeah. I, I hope that's clear. You know, I tend to be a little too academic sometimes. I've been, I, I, I've been told. <laughs> well, I, I very much appreciated that point that you made that was, uh, of course, laid out in this book you were telling us about from the 19th century about the split between efficient functions, the practical functions, and the ceremonial dignified functions, and then the way in which, as you, you, you tell us, that those are discrete from one another, at least to some extent in, in Britain, in a way that uh, that they that they are not here in America. One of the most interesting things I read about Prince Philip and his long, I don't know, career, if you want to call it, as as uh, as an active member of the royal family is that he completed something like over 22,000 solo engagements. And that, of course, would be since the early 1950s when his wife became queen. But I mean, it just it's a, a, a staggering legacy of, of service. And of course, the, the queen herself also has a similarly staggering legacy. And I think that's something that sometimes we as Americans uh, do not appreciate. Uh, and even if we kind of read numbers like that, that doesn't mean we still appreciate the significance of that kind of life and legacy. And it relates to the ceremonial functions. Um, a lot of it international. The British Empire really did span the world and the British Commonwealth, uh, the nations that, that were colonies who've become independent, is really a substantial organization, not very visible. My guess is we'll be reading and hearing more about it when uh, now that Britain is no longer part of the European Union and has, is, is under tremendous pressure, frankly, to try to um, uh, renew and re-energize and make more profitable. They're truly global economic ties. I was privileged to spend uh, almost a year in England doing research on my PhD dissertation and in watching television, uh, which you, you had to get a license from the post office, interestingly enough. I found British TV really quite fascinating and uh, overall a good deal more serious than US TV. There were only three or four channels, as I recall. But an awful lot of the news was um, the prince and or the queen and or good old Prince Charles literally touring the world. And I remember having the thought, you know, this is really a tough job. Today she's in Australia, and <laughs> two days later she's in Scotland. And uh, what, what do you know? Here he is in Kenya. They spend an awful lot of their time traveling, and it does become quite grueling. Right. And of course, quite a lot of time traveling separately. I mean, as you, yes, indeed. you're saying, she's in Australia, he's in Kenya, and so on. And so yeah, it's, a big, it's a big Commonwealth. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and it's something that we tend to assign to the White House, and uh, 
and the presidency. And it means that uh, uh, people who are very good at efficient functions can be overshadowed by those who do the dignified functions. Um, the Kennedy family continues to be, uh, perhaps uniquely, fascinating for Americans. And I don't minimize the accomplishments of, um, of President Kennedy, but a, a good deal of his uh, uh, limited legislative success during his brief term in office was result, uh, the Kennedy people quite unwi unwisely tended to sideline Lyndon Johnson, the vice president, when it came to the legislature, given their, even though he had dominated the Senate literally for nearly a decade as majority and briefly minority leader. Um, uh, Hubert Humphrey, the Senate whip, uh, not at all colorful and charismatic, but somebody who really got the job done was very, very important to that legislation. I'm very glad we we're discussing off the air. Humphrey is finally getting slowly but surely the great respect he deserves as a truly important positive leader in our country. Uh, Mondale had a rather similar function, I think, for the inexperienced Jimmy Carter in Washington. And the modern vice presidency, which was established by Richard Nixon, it was not a consequential office before Nixon came along, I want to emphasize. Uh, Mondale really built on that, uh, as did Joe Biden, uh, with an, a quite an experienced president, Barack Obama, a vice president who really knows the ropes in Washington and can get the efficient functions done. I, I hope that's a clear point, but you can learn a lot by comparing your own country to others in terms of government politics, but also business, culture, whatever you're doing for a living, it's important to take a look at what's going on elsewhere. For those of you just joining us, Dr. Art Sear is with us for his monthly visit to the morning show uh, here on WGTD. I was struck actually by the fact that your your four most recent columns uh, all dealt with with foreign affairs of, of one, one kind or another. And uh, one of your columns, uh, uh, speaks about the uh, the turmoil within Ukraine and actually points to the fact that uh, at the moment we seem to be seeing some rather serious deterioration between uh, our between the relation between the United States uh, and Russia before talking specifically about Ukraine uh, give us a kind of a sense of the way in which uh, our relationship is is much more tense right now than it has been in recent years. I'm not sure that it, that it is more tense. Um, Russia intervened militarily um, in a very in a very overt way in 2014, I believe, um, and has occupied Eastern Ukraine with quote volunteers unquote. Um, the column emphasized. Um, in fairness to your point, that Putin has been very aggressive symbolically recently in terms of troop movements right up to the um, uh, border of Western Ukraine, the unoccupied area, a tremendous number of military aircraft as far north as the Baltic and as far south as the Mediterranean have been very aggressive and flying close to uh, NATO warships and, and, uh, and aircraft. In that symbolic sense, there's been a lot going on, but I think probably during the um, 
George W. Bush administration, when quite unwisely, another vice president who had tremendous clout, Dick Cheney, was pressing to expand NATO as far as possible right up against the Russian border in a very real sense, constantly slapping uh, Putin and the Russian government in the face. I think things were much more dangerous then. And uh, Georgia and Ukraine are two important states in that geographically complicated part of the world that were very significant components of the Soviet Union. And in this case is Cheney, especially uh, for psychological reasons, I think much more than policy reasons, was poking uh, the Russian bear in the eye, so to speak. Uh, Georgia invaded a breakaway small state, South Ossetia, in which, at which point the Russian army invaded Georgia in 2008. Um, and there was similar conflict around Ukraine. The, uh, the, the um, uh, takeover of Crimea by Russia in 2014, as I tried to indicate a, a minute ago, really heightened tensions, but I think we've actually been in a much more dangerous situation um, earlier in the century. It's very complicated. It's part of the world I don't understand particularly well compared to Western Europe. Um, <laughs> That doesn't, that doesn't stop me from talking about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ukraine was a nuclear power, and this bears on other things that you and I often talk about. It had one third of the Soviet nuclear weapons arsenal. It was the number three nuclear power in the world. It is the largest state, I believe, in terms of territory in Europe outside of Russia. So it's very, very consequential. We tend to often refer to these places like they're peripheral, but they're not. Uh, Ukraine, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, has had sort of free elections. They've oscillated between autocracy and, and fairly representative government. At the urging of the Clinton administration, they voluntarily gave up their nuclear weapons. And, uh, and their problems have increased significantly since. It's a, an object lesson for other countries, including especially North Korea but France for that matter, uh, all the other nuclear weapons states, certainly the Israelis who, who refuse to admit, but undeniably have nuclear weapons. Uh, look at what happened to Ukraine once they gave up their new nuclear arsenal. Uh, one thing that's not often mentioned is it's, it's exhibit A for the proposition that if you're a nuclear weapons state, you sure as hell better hang on to them because between the Russians and the Americans and others, you're gonna have a lot more grief than you're suffering right now if you get rid of them. Wow. Yeah, one, one of the good things I appreciate about your program is the chance to mention facts, whatever my opinion might be, but mention facts that are increasingly ignored by the mainstream media. One of the reasons I characterized our relationship with Russia in the way that I did is, is just, I guess, more than anything because of the fact that uh, the Biden administration has imposed sanctions on Russia. And some of them are characterized as, as fairly significant. Um, uh, do you see them as significant? Uh, yes, I do. We increasingly have not only the rule of law, but a loose and uncertain, but increasingly effective network of international institutions, including international banking 
networks. Um, in the informal reference to the Basel Group refers to central bankers who cooperate not only on financial policy, but also broader public policies, including law enforcement, I believe. We have Interpol, which has been around for, um, it's been around for a long time historically, but with the end of the Cold War, they really have teeth to um, enforce banking regulations. And the fact that you can target an individual in, a, in our high tech pervasive um, telecommunications uh, age, you can actually have an impact on targeted individuals in terms of restricting their travel and limiting their finances. Uh, so I think they have more than symbolic importance. Uh, speaking of Mondale and President Carter, they deserve a lot of credit for something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was passed in the latter set 1970s and is a very expansive law. If you are doing business with Americans or an American, or you're doing business with an American company, or you're supplying an American company, or you're buying products from an American company, and you break our laws, the US Justice Department will come after you. Uh, it's one of a number of significant accomplishments of much criticized and sometimes ridiculed President Carter that I think are gonna have long-term, already having long-term very significant impact given not just the military power, but the global economic reach of the United States of America. Uh, if you're a drug dealer or an arms merchant operating outside of the law, or if you're a polished, highly paid, well-dressed corporate executive who is operating outside the law, you're gonna get nailed in a way that was not the case during the Cold War and certainly was not the case before the 1970s. I think it's another important point. That's another thing that I don't fully understand, but I'm working on studying it and trying to publish on it. Wow. That means that despite all the horrible headlines and the pandemic and uh, uh, the latest scandal referring to royal families, and you know, actually we're getting a much more stable law-abiding world. And Americans should feel particularly good about that because it's our power and influence that's been making this possible. Let's shift our attention to a part of the world that uh, uh, you know a great deal about, and I'm always appreciative of the perspective you share when it comes to events on the Korean Peninsula. And uh, and as of late, I don't think I'm overstating it to say that uh, that North Korea is uh, once again engaging in what uh, you yourself call disturbing provocation. Uh, but I really appreciate it in the column in which you write about this, uh, that you talk about, uh, I think, an array of three different really basic realities that often get lost, uh, particularly if we are prone to kind of quick sort of knee-jerk reaction to some of what goes on uh, in, in North Korea. And I'm, I'm, I'm anxious for you to kind of explore that. First of all, though, explain to any of our listeners who've not followed this closely what we're talking about in terms of what uh, uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un has been up to as of late. Uh, well, they've launched missiles. Um, they've had another missile test on March 25, uh, Pyongyang, the capital, the, the capital of North Korea where the regime is based, the Pyongyang regime launched two missiles off the East Coast 
They flew 373 miles, according to their official news agency. Monitors in Japan and uh, our Japanese friends are uh, always anxious and intensely focused on whatever happens in um, South Korea, for that matter, as well as North Korea. Um, they went more like 400 miles. That's nothing new. Um, during the Trump administration, President Trump uh, had highly, more than one highly uh, publicized meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un, and they seemed to get along in personal terms, and there was a lot of rhetoric, especially from President Trump on the subject. Um, North Korea seemed, seemed to go into some abeyance on these provocative actions, but now they're back at it again. In that sense, again, it's nothing new. Uh, uh, talk about these basic realities that you think the United States needs to keep in mind as it formulates its policy regarding North Korea. I really appreciated uh, the, 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 the sort of the common sense practicality of, of all three of these points. Well, well, first of all, the North Koreans now have made made it an established policy to be inconsistent, not having any consistency to their rhetoric or, or their largely symbolic moves. It has now become a way of life. In 2013, Pyongyang declared a state of war with South Korea, and they abruptly abrogated the 1953 armistice. Uh, at the same time, um, they've engaged in accommodating moves um, of more than just a symbolic nature. Um, collaboration regarding the Asian Olympics and uh, friendly meetings between the two sides, including a, sung, a, a uh, uh, historically really important meeting between um, President Moon of South Korea and uh, great, great leader, totalitarian leader Kim of North Korea. Second, um, I emphasize that the commitment to South Korea is really important. Um, the last book I was able to get published drew analogies between our special relationship with Great Britain, and our special relationship with South Korea, which dates from our quite heroic and President Truman's quite heroic defense of South Korea with the United Nations uh, from 1950 to 53. Um, and third, we should emphasize coordination with the South Koreans. Whatever we do should be through the South Korean government. Um, mind you, the South Koreans liked, liked my book. It was translated into Korean, which I really appreciated, and had some pretty good sales there. Uh, most other people did not care for my analogy, I found, uh, including with some, some hostile reviews. But uh, nonetheless, I continue to, continue to believe that way. So that I think bilateral uh, relations, taking the initiative with lots of media attention, is a good way for a president to get headlines, and that's what politicians are in business to do in part. But the more we can, the, the kind of boring, undramatic day-to-day uh, -day diplomacy and relationship building multilaterally is what really counts. And there in Northeast Asia, we have tremendous opportunities, partly because of the uh, screwball nature of the rhetoric from the North and also because of the tremendous uh, continuing growth of China and our very serious problems for them. <laughs> I would love to hear you expand a little on this intriguing point you made, uh, you know, first of all, in us understanding in your words that unpredictability is normal. 
when we're talking about North Korea and particularly the North Korea of, of Kim Jong-un, that that's just you know part of what he is all about. Uh, but at some point, you also make the point that this unpredictability, this inconsistency, uh, which kind of makes everything seem quite volatile and uh, and against which we might want to react really strongly at every turn, that that inconsistency is not just because of who Kim Jong-un is or how he operates, but that it also is very likely an indication of, of a complicated reality beneath the surface. Uh, I think you maybe use a term like infighting or something like it to describe what perhaps is going on maybe uh, in terms of those that are around Kim Jong-un and advising him and maybe who he's listening to at various times. But can you talk a little bit more about that really interesting picture that you are painting of life within the government of North Korea? Uh, I mean, and it's obviously a government that in so many ways operates sort of outside of, of, of Western eyes. Um, we don't really know very much about North Korea, really. It's a remarkably secretive regime, but the erratic moves, again, I emphasize mostly of a symbolic nature. Um, to me, imply strongly a lot of factional infighting underneath the top. Um, it's very much a personality cult, publicly, uh, based on the Kim family. Um, almost a feudal warlord rather than a modern industrial state. It's quite ironic because historically the northern part of Korea, which has the natural resources, was during the long Japanese occupation from early, um, yeah, early in the 20th century until 1945, when there was an, uh, it was a unified nation. It wasn't divided until the end of um, the Second World War. The northern part was the promising area industrially. South Korea is now an economic powerhouse among the top 10 to 12 economies in the world from being one of the poorest countries in the world at the end of the Korean War and into the 1960s. North Korea is an economic basket case. I've been surprised that it's held together as long as it has. The power of the army, and again, we're not dealing with a unified organization, but the power of the army and their willingness to support the Kim family, and again, a kind of feudal fashion, very alien to us, is, uh, is quite remarkable. Beyond that, all we know is the people have put up with tremendous suffering in a way that uh, is unbelievable for, for mo modern human beings, but uh, yet they endure, and the regime endures. One other point that's rarely mentioned in the media is they are terrified of us. There is tremendous fear of the United States. And given the fact that to me, Donald Trump personified in his rhetoric and some of his behavior, the really unstable, frightening image of the US that the regime has promoted since the Korean War. Uh, I'm particularly glad that President Trump was willing and able to meet personally with Kim. The armistice since 1953 has held. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower made a promise during the um, uh, heated 1952 presidential campaign, I will go to Korea. Uh, the Truman administration 
and President Truman had become quite unpopular, mainly because of the long, inconclusive Korean War. Uh, very wise policy, in my opinion, and not just in my opinion, but one that really brought down Truman. He would not have run for another term in 52 in any case, I believe, based on his diary, but it's undeniable he was extraordinarily unpopular. Eisenhower did go to Korea. He worked out an armistice, and the armistice is held. There's been no war. Additionally, in, in recent years, there have been very few armed shooting incidents, and it's been many, it's been years since North Korean suicide squads went south, which they used to do on a regular basis. Um, Eisenhower threatened to use nuclear weapons through John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State. Joseph Stalin had the courtesy to die. Uh, right around the time Eisenhower was taking office and he had pressed the Korean War. But there's a third factor beyond nukes and Stalin. We started killing everyone in North Korea. You have to look hard in history books to find this. It's Eisenhower at war from my point of view, uh, cl classically presented. Uh, there were very few military targets left in North Korea. So we started bombing everything. Their hydroelectric um, dams were bombed. For large, vast areas of North Korea, there was nothing but water and wreckage and carnage and bodies of women and children, as well as men. Uh, they, we knocked out their um, electric power grid, such as it was. Northeastern China uh, had no power for quite some time. We had B-29 bombers flying around the clock. We were bombing every single damn thing that could be hit in North Korea. And I'm convinced that Eisenhower, without ever getting directly involved, had American officers. Uh, when the microphones and cameras were off at Panmunjom, um, where the uh, armist endless armistice talks were going on, we told them, you're all gonna die. And if we don't hit you, you're gonna wish you were dead. Um, and that was crucial in getting the armistice. If you look hard in history books, you can find this. Uh, Eisenhower himself only in the most indirect, subtle way alludes to it in his voluminous memoirs. That ended the Korean War, uh, to totally unknown to Americans, unless you really look at it. Um, but it's something, a kind of history to which we're oblivious. It happened yesterday, as far as North Korea's leaders are concerned. And they are very much afraid of the US, which helps account for the kind of hysterical rhetoric that's been a regular part of North Korea's approach to the world since 1953. Hmm. That, is a, that is an interpretation that uh, we, we don't hear very much uh, in, in mainstream media, but it, it makes perfect sense. And it's important for helping us understand sort of the why behind what we hear from uh, Kim Jong-un. And um, I appreciate also what you talk about in terms of the, the importance that we try to coordinate any response to North Korea with uh, not only South Korea, but China and Russia as well. Not, not an easy thing necessarily to accomplish, but important all the same. Uh, yeah, and anyone who's traveled there, our, our good friend and colleague, Yuri Maltzer from uh, Russia, uh, he... Um, uh, was good enough to have a meal with one of our alums, Ian Johnston, who's now in the US Army and may well make it a career, a fine 
IPE, International Political Economy graduate, I'm glad to say, because that's the program for which I continue to be responsible at the college. Uh, the meal was free of charge. The Korean restaurant owner in Seoul said any American in uniform uh, gets as many free meals as you want in my establishment because of the way you saved us. Uh, South Korea maintained 50,000 troops in uh, South Vietnam throughout our long war. There, unlike ours, about 90% of our forces are non-combat um, and engaged in very equally important supply and medical communications functions. The Koreans were almost all combat troops. Uh, Korean dictator Char Park Chung-hee got well compensated financially by the US government. Uh, as I was reminded by one uh, email in response to my latest South Korean column, quite right. They profited financially when they really needed the support, but the Koreans were there in Vietnam only because of this very powerful affinity for the United States. The Japanese were busy capturing the industrial and commercial enterprise, enterprise uh, markets, including consumer motorbikes, which were everywhere in um, urban areas in South Vietnam. But the Koreans were there for us. Now, mind you, they became quite notorious and uh, uh, rather controversial because of their approach to war. Uh, but, but too often we Americans ignore the fact that war is a very, very dirty, ugly, horrible business. It's not a video game. It's not some Hollywood movie. Uh, it's not the way too many Americans tend to view the world, in my opinion. Uh, and that is a problem for us, which is getting worse, although I may be just another grumpy old man. But the Koreans were extraordinarily faithful to us. Um, and that continues to be a linchpin relationship. And read about President Moon. It's an inspiring career for, for any American, a special forces military officer, an anti uh, um, an activist who spent some time in prison because of his activism against the earlier dictatorship when he was a very young man. And again, someone who personifies this tremendous affinity for the United States. There are good friends, just like the Brits. Very good. Let's finish out with uh, signs of promise within the uh, turbulent uh, land of Afghanistan ah. and the peace negotiations going forward there, which you describe as serious, sensitive, tangled negotiations. And you go on to say uh, negotiations that a lot of people believe would never, ever take place. Describe just what makes this scenario so very unlikely or surprising? Well, in some ways, it's not surprising. We've been there for 20 years, and we should, um, in, my, in my opinion, our, our departure is long overdue. It's corrupting for everybody, including especially the Afghans. Um, Trump was elected by the Electoral College, uh, but he also got uh, an awful lot of popular votes, including from military veterans and serving military line people, the um, men and women in uniform. The military brass doesn't care for them for understandable reasons, in my opinion, but there are an awful lot of people who feel that we are overcommitted uh, in the world. Since the start early in the Clinton administration, I believe Washington has been entirely cavalier about sending 
our military people are all over the place in exhausting missions that are too often repeated without enough downtime at home. Um, specifically regarding Afghanistan, we had no choice but to in, invade, which we did with United Nations and NATO authorization. This was not another unilateral adventure like the invasion of Iraq. Um, we overthrew the Taliban, which had, uh, sheltered Osama bin Laden and associates in Al-Qaeda. And then we proceeded to occupy the country. Um, we have done a tremendous amount of good with our NATO and UN allies, including, let me emphasize, the Turks, who are causing a lot of, whose leader is causing a lot of sustained trouble for the United States in foreign policy, but who remain very loyal uh, NATO allies. Um, we have done as much as we could for that country, I think, on a humanitarian as well as military basis. And it's very much time for us to go home. You, you are pulling no punches and talking about, you know, kind of how messy this situation has be, become, describing it at one point in your column as a continuing nightmare quagmire. <laughs> uh, and and I, I don't think there are too many people who would, who would uh, disagree with that uh, characterization. So how are we likely to, what kind of Afghanistan are we likely to leave uh, in the wake of our departure? Or is it premature to, to, to know or possible to even guess? Oh, we can always guess. That's a good part of how I spend my time on your fine program. Uh, nobody knows what will happen. And that's important to keep in mind because um, as our departure approaches, more and more people are sounding the alarm in the media, uh, especially politicians, uh, about uh, cataclysm descending after we depart. Uh, two facts. Number one, Afghanistan is not really a nation. It's a set of provinces run by, again, feudal warlords, tribal leaders who really control their particular area. The central government never has controlled the countryside and neither has anyone else. No country has ever taken over Afghanistan. In 1979, the Soviet Union often referred to as their version of Vietnam, after controlling the country, the, the Kabul government, to a degree, for some time, they quite insanely invaded the country. And my understanding is, not just in Kabul, but almost wherever you go, you can still see uh, startling numbers of downed helicopter gunships, the really big ones that the Soviets went in for, and tanks. Wherever you go, there are knocked out tanks. Uh, President Carter, again, to his great credit, reinforced by President Reagan, who introduced lethal Stinger missiles, hand-killed, hand handheld, inexpensive by Pentagon standards, uh, very versatile weapons that are extraordinarily lethal in knocking down uh, helicopters, aircraft, killing tanks, you name it. Uh, Carter and Reagan deserve great credit for supporting the insurgency that finally forced the Soviets to leave. In the 1800s, referring to the British again, they lost three armies in Afghanistan. The first in the 1830s was quite a dramatic denouement when one man, picture a Hollywood movie, one man 
uh, staggering out of the desert or the uh, large British ship supply ships on the coast far away in South Asia. Uh, he was a doctor. He was the only survivor from this very large British expeditionary force. And he was there only because the warlords decided to let him live so he could go back and tell what had happened. Uh, London finally worked out a modus vivendi in um, uh, the 1880s, such that they were able to have fairly good diplomatic relations with Afghanistan. Again, it's not really a country, and hmm. we define that term, but uh, with a collection of warlords uh, that were willing to deal with Kabul, they got what they wanted, security for their trade routes above all. Uh, the Silk Road Highway, it's been important since um, medieval times, since ancient times. The British withdrew in 1919. And since that time, no one has um, uh, really been able to take over Afghanistan. So why should we think that we could? We haven't really. Uh, our good colleague, um, Mark Miller, who's now emeritus from management and marketing, has done a personal memoir my confessions from Vietnam. He was an infantryman who did a tour in Vietnam during the war, as you know. A, a fine person to have on your program, by the way. He uh, draws some very useful analogies in his book, which he was, uh, he did me the honor of asking me to help him edit. And I, I wanted him to leave in his reference to Afghanistan because long before the Soviet invasion at the end of 79, it was an object lesson for how you can get into big trouble if you intervene. On the plus side, women are voting. Uh, we, we have, in Kabul especially, imposed um, a modern economy and society that's not going to disappear completely. And I frankly would be surprised if the Taliban were able to return to you know, the, the society of 1500 or 1600 AD that they enjoyed putting in place before. I don't think it will be um, a return to what it was before before 9-11. Well, on that uh, hopeful note, uh, we have to finish out this conversation. But uh, once again, I deeply appreciate uh, all the insights that you've shared. Uh, you have this amazing encyclopedia in that this head of yours uh, enabled people to <laughs> share with us all kinds of insights, not only about the present moment, but but the historical context, not just here, but abroad. Um, I really appreciate uh, all that you've offered today in this conversation and look forward to, uh, to future conversations with you. Dr. Art Seer, Claussen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage and Director of the Claussen Center. Thanks so much for this conversation. Well, thank you, Greg, for this opportunity and for your kindness as always. I, I, the kindness especially goes a long way, especially nowadays. Mm -hmm. <laughs>